0: Jesus, O Holy One, I sing to you, forgive, Savior, I'm overcome with your great love for me, with your great, with your great love for me. Father God, we thank you for your great and awesome love. What a blessed assurance, Father God, to know that we are loved by the King. We thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Welcome to this Heritage Day convocation. Aren't these flowers beautiful? I don't know about these props. I want to speak briefly about Heritage Day, and then I want to speak about the heritage of our speaker. I requested the chaplain that at the conclusion of the address today we sing our alma mater. Some of you freshmen may be the first time you've heard it, and there'll be a benediction offered today by one of the sons of our speaker, Reverend Jeremy Scott. The initiative for this, as I have observed it, took place in the fall of 1948 at the annual trustee faculty dinner when one of our founding teachers, Dean Bertha Monroe, was honored with a gift of a hundred silver dollars. The following year, 1949, Professor Alice Spendenberg, who was a member of the first class, graduated in 1922, and a long-time faculty member here, was given a similar award. It was not until 1961 that we instituted a formal convocation called Founders Day. It took place at the annual meeting of the trustees. There was a printed program. There was an academic procession, academic regalia. The trustees were here. We all marched in to to the the organ. I suspect that uh, Miss Cove was there, back there, beating time to try to keep us in step. The address was printed and was distributed at the end of the meeting. I remember it was 40 years ago last week that I gave my first Founders' Day address. It was in celebration of the publication of ENC the first 50 years. By 1975, we'd run out of founders. We'd addressed all the early presidents and the early founders of the school, so we switched from Founders' Day to, to Harry's Day. Since then, the trustees have needed a different period of time. We've lost some of the formality of, of all this occasion. This weekend, when the alumni re- return, they're going to have a big celebration of King's Tournament, something most of you don't know about but I suggest that be an excellent topic for a future Heritage Day address. Now let me say something about the heritage of our speaker today. She is one of four generations of nieces who cumulatively have served over a century on this campus. Her grandfather arrived here in 1919 with the first faculty members. In 1924, he became the second president of this institution. And while raising money and recruiting students in 1930, he gave his life in Pittsburgh. Her grandmother, Madeline Ostromese, who had been at PCI for 35 years, served as registrar of this college. When the Eastern Nazarene Academy finally closed in 1955, she had been the principal for a number of years. She was the first foreign student advisor, international student advisor. In 1950, our speaker's father arrived on campus. He lived in the apartment over here in, in, the, in the Memorial Hall. He was the coach, the athletic director, He was also the first dean of men. He spent his summers traveling for the school with male quartets, raising money and recruiting students. He did such a good good job of it, they made him executive secretary today, they'd call him a vice president. Somebody else thought he was doing a pretty good job too. When the church decided to found a college in Ohio, he was the founding president of Mount Vernon Nazarene College. When Bethany Nazarene College, now SNU, was about to go under with a $4 million debt about bankruptcy. He went and bailed that one out. Later, he was president of Nazarene Theological Seminary. It was on Founders Day in got to hear my notes, 1981 that he was inaugurated as the ninth president of Eastern Nazarene College. Our speaker today has two sons who are both present today, and they have served... One occupied the apartment his grandfather did over a memorial, a member of the administration. Another son has been an adjunct faculty member. He's the one who will offer the, the benediction for today. In 1953, when the first uh, niece Library was founded in what's now the Grimshaw Center for Institutional Advancement, our speaker today contributed $2.00 It did her 18-month-old brother to the library fund that year. When they got to build a new niece library, I went to the administration and said, this one, Floyd W., isn't enough. After all all the service of Floyd W., Madeline N., and Stephen W., it has to be named for all three, and so it does bear those names. The speaker we have today, a graduate of ENC, graduate of Mount Vernon first, holds two degrees from here, a doctorate in education, in addition to being a minister's wife and a mother, and I see a grandmother, Her professional education career has been as a teacher. She started as a second second grade teacher, became a reading specialist, but most of her career she was a a principal of schools. When she finally gave up her last position to come here, she was assistant superintendent of schools. For many years she served as a trustee at Eastern Nazarene College and was a very important member of the education committee. And now she's a professor in the education department. It's my privilege today to present Professor Linda Neese Scott.
2: That's about it. Thank you, Dr. Cameron. (laughs) Do I need to move this? Good morning. Thanks for showing up for this. One knows they have reached a certain level of maturity when asked to speak at a Heritage Day event. That happened to me five or so years ago. So the maturity is fast approaching genuine old age when the invitation is extended yet again. And I got a few more grandchildren since then. Students, you will find as the years go on for you that the early years are always close in mind and the gap between seems somehow more vague and the connections to your past become more important and defined. So here we are today, contemplating yesterday and its relationship to tomorrow. My yesterdays were intricately woven with Eastern Nazarene College by birthright. In Symphonies of Praise in 1931 about Floyd W. Neese, ENC's second president and my grandfather, his brother Orville Neese wrote, the determining factors of a worthy life are not wealth or prestige or education or position but rather those spiritual influences that often antedate the character itself. Paul, writing to Timothy, reminds him that the faith he enjoys had its inception in his grandmother, Lois, and its development in his mother, Eunice. When one of our great statesmen was asked when one ought to start training a child, he replied, 100 years before he is born. My preparations for today have convinced me of that, and I'm thankful. We'll talk about that today, but first a little background of my ENC-related genealogy for some of you who don't know my connections, although if you don't after that, you will really well by the time you finish today. I was born on April 10, 1950, yes, now you all know, to Stephen Wesley Niece and Dorothy Christine Hardy Niece in Newark, Ohio, their firstborn, where my father was pastoring a small Nazarene church. They had three rooms and a path which meant they had a path to an outhouse and a six dollar a week salary. I came as a bit of a disappointment to my father, who um, later told me that I missed arriving by Easter Sunday, hence could not be counted for that all-important Easter Sunday school number. To add insult to injury, Dad had hoped for a boy since he was surrounded by women all of his growing up life his mother, his sister, Miss Monroe, and Miss Harris. And then once he got a good look, his comment was, Well, we'll dress her well and she'll get a man. I don't know about the dressing part, but I got to marry my best friend and most staunch supporter, so that part worked out very well. Yeah. 40 years this coming June. My mother in the delivery room groggily commented that I looked like Cindy, their little black dog. (laughs) My birth was followed by the births of three boys, making up for the initial disappointment. Later, a sister and another brother joined the gang. In a world of divided families, we remain close, a living memorial to our heritage, and I am very grateful. My grandfather, Floyd W. Neese, died in 1930 while presiding over the early days of this institution. His wife of eight years, Madeline Nostra Niece, left, was left with five-year-old Stephen and his ten-month-old sister, Helen Monroe Niece. She worked and lived for ENC the rest of her days, able to subsist in part due to the protective generosity of ENC. As we grew up, Dean Monroe and her living partner for 47 years, Mary Harris, were known to us as Annie Birdie and Annie Mary, and I may slip and call them that. And they were on an equal family plane with our grandparents. As age took its toll on these folks, my grandmother first, then Miss Harris, Miss Monroe, my dad, then my mom, the boxed contents of their various attics, their treasured notes and artifacts, ended up in our attic. Things I'm going to go through someday, they had all planned. They never got to it, and I am left sorting and wondering and remembering. Some visitors to my office have commented on its archival contents noted the bulletin board in the hall, while others passed by not seeming to notice. And I wonder what to do with it all, and who really cares anymore? I've learned many things through this sorting experience, that these my family were dedicated and committed to God and Christian education, specifically that of Eastern Nazarene College, that they loved their families, and family was much broader than blood connections that they enjoyed living and being together, that there was never enough, enough time, enough money, enough energy, but most of all, enough of them. One of the things that sounded a chord in my spirit that was evidenced repeatedly was their deep sense of their own inability to be what they felt they should be. These heroes, these dedicated and remarkable founders of our institution often felt very, very, well human. And without God's ever-present grace in their lives, the same grace available to us today, they would not have been able to carry on. But here we are. I will tell you what I can of my deep connections to ENC. Thinking about this day and trying to compartmentalize and prioritize what to share, I was reminded of what I often tell my students about teaching and learning, make connections. As I researched, the connections that I made between my family history and the development of this college helped me learn a great deal of who I am or who I am trying to be. I also learned that heroes are made of very ordinary and imperfect people, like all of us. And stories like Dr. McGee often has shared make connections more clear and meaningful. So stories it is for today. My grandmother, Grammy Niece, was born Madeline Adzelette Van Nostrand in Long Island, New York on September 1st, 1893, and grew up in Brooklyn. Like Miss Monroe, whom she had not yet met, Grammy lost her mother when she was 15. My sense is that her parents were not very connected to any church, but somehow, Madeline ended up as a student at Pentecostal Collegiate Institute, PCI in Rhode Island, not too long after the loss of her mother. Somehow, more likely God. Miss Monroe, six years Madeline Sr., had been invited in the spring of 1910 to teach at PCI by its principal, E. E. Angel. Recognize that name? Come to the ER and see his picture. ER is our pet name for the shared space of the education and religion departments in Angel Hall. If time would allow, I would love to tell you of Bertha Monroe's childhood days. Many mementos of which I have found in her grandmother's writing box, and that's what's right here. Her grade cards from Cliftondale, her letters to her mother from Douglas Camp when she was a little girl, blonde locks of her hair, 1880s letters um, from her relatives. I'd love to share these things with you at some time, but I have no time today. At PCI, Madeline and Bertha established a lifelong relationship that would carry them through ENC's earliest days to their ultimate move to their Heavenly Father's home. Madeline lived with Miss Monroe until her marriage in a sort of mother-daughter relationship. Notes to each other that we find are signed M from Bertha, mother, and B from Madeline, baby. PCI had neither indoor plumbing—you think you got it tough today because it's cold in here? They had no indoor plumbing. They had no central heat. And salaries faculty were prorated after other financial obligations of the institution were met. Students worked at a mop factory, where they made handles to sell to help with their expenses. I have a few, should you need some. In July of 1911, during her time at PCI, Miss Monroe was in a train wreck, which was a turning point in her life. She had traveled to Washington, D.C. for the wedding of her dear friends, James Houston Schrader and Annie Hoseley, having to return early due to the death of her brother. I surmise that the promises she made to God while lying under the wreckage were central to her role in the beginnings of E.N.C. From Bertha's autobiography, The Years Teach, 1970, she wrote that while awaiting rescue under the train, she had a sense that if they were to get her out, her, quote, life would belong to the Lord in a special way. This she soon came to see meant glad expendability for a holiness college in New England. In 1915, Miss Monroe and her father, Alexander Monroe, and Madeline moved to Cambridge so that Bertha could pursue graduate work at Radcliffe. Her father used his Irish shalala. That's what I came up with to take daily walks along Fresh Pond Parkway, which I'm not sure you dare walk along today, with this old knotted cane, that was used later by Miss Monroe at the end of her life. Miss Monroe taught Madeline her sophomore high school languages and then moved on to teach at Taylor in Indiana with my grandmother and and Bertha's father still in tow. She will go back to PCI, she promised, when they moved to offering a Bachelor of Arts. While at Taylor, Bertha broke her engagement, did you know Bertha Monroe was engaged, I'll bet most of you didn't, but she was engaged to a Henry, and I don't know his last name. She broke the engagement because, from what I can get from the letters, he was not committed to the gospel of holiness. I have this letter of his response to her questioning, it's a very fascinating read. In 1919, Dr. Fred Shields encouraged Miss Monroe to come to ENC during its foundling days as it was about to evolve on the previous summer estate of Boston's mayor, Josiah Quincy. His, that's where you are, folks, if you didn't know that. His grave is easily seen when standing at my grandparents' and Miss Monroe and Miss Harris's at Mount Wollaston Seminary. It's a very interesting connection that you can see Josiah Quincy's right from there. For me, it's an interesting one anyway. The three soon became residents in the mansion, the central building to the fledgling campus. Dean Monroe writes, we had a superb faculty in those fledgling years, and our fellowship was unmarred, and it was a positively working comradeship. We were learning the joys of building from the ground up. Among that fine faculty, she lists Floyd W. Neese, who was serving as a professor, as the registrar, and as dean of men. He had moved to New England in 1919, the son of an itinerant preacher, William O'Neese, and a graduate of the Bible Holiness Seminary High School in Michigan, and then UCLA. As the campus grew, Miss Monroe and Madeline and Alexander moved to 11 West Elm Ave, and that's the house right over there in the corner. I have my grandmother's diary notations from 1920 to 1922 and found some very intriguing quotes. March 1920, quote, Mr. Shields preached this morning and Prof. Nies tonight. His sermon was awful. None yielded. 1921, Labor Day. Prof. Nies spoke very strangely to me about my call to evangelistic work. The next Friday, Prof. Nies spoke strangely to me again. Early October, she would across the days, I felt terrible all day Monday and tried to avoid Prof. Nice, for I knew he'd preached to me last night. Oh, if I had only gone to the altar. Why do I act like this? No one can like me. At four o'clock, I went to the office to see Mr. Dieforth about books. Prof. Nice came out into the hall with me and asked me if I would go to one of the Boston churches next Sunday. I acted horribly to him because I thought he was going to talk about spiritual things, but at last I said I would go. I was more than surprised when he asked me. I wonder what poor Gladys would say. I say, good for her. I wish I knew who Gladys was. I'm thinking she had her eye on Floyd, but I don't know. My Aunt Helen tells me that Grammy told Bertha that she thought that they would be going with a group and perhaps a chaperone. Annie Bertie replied, you little goose, he's asking you for a date. <laughs> the diary continues. Sunday, October 9th. Prof. Nice and I went to Tremont Temple. He talked to me about spiritual experience. Oh, dear, why and how did I ever get this way? Wednesday, October 12th. Prof. Nice took me out for the day. Mr. and Mrs. Seiforth went, too. I think to chaperone. Food show, Noreva Park, Boston at night. I had a fine time all but the last half hour. How I wish I was sanctified. Friday, October 14th. Prof. Nice left for Philadelphia, where he is to hold two weeks revival services. I wish they were over. It seems that somewhere the relationship had turned from merely spiritual support to true courtship. They were soon engaged and the wedding was planned for August the 29th, 1922. And soon to be President Nice was on the road conducting revival meetings, raising funds, and finding students for ENC. I have the letters, many of them. During their engagement and separa- engagement separation and later separations, the bundled letters had a note in my grandmother's hand for Stephen and Helen. When they turned 21, you may not understand all of these, but we will help you to know your daddy and mother better and know we always loved each other. The letters are wonderful. I have yet to complete reading, but many thanks to my son Jeff, who's done the transcribing of Grammy's long letters and my grandfather's difficult penmanship. The letters revealed two people that loved each other and their Lord, ones who experienced the same drives and desires of lovers today. Some references to Farmer Brown and picking apples and harvest time in August revealed they had not prayed through a release from their premarital abstinence. The letters also revealed more of the NC. July 10th, 1922, Madeline to Floyd. Miss Richards can't get money to go home, and she says she is ashamed to wire her people for it. Mrs. Shields, remember Fred Shields was president, told her that they could promise no money, and this is in July, they could promise no money until after the tuitions come in next September. Miss Monroe will have to have some, I know that much. He also said that the school has been advertised because the first year's taxes have not been paid. And she puts an addendum. Let's go into the evangelistic field. I don't know if there was more money there. Separating from Bertha, who had mothered Madeline so faithfully, was difficult for both. In a letter to Bertha dated June 29, 1922, from J.C. Bierce, Reverend J.C. Bierce, The pastor and friend who had earlier baptized 11-year-old Bertha at Lynn Beach, quote, You have done some beautiful things, by the grace of God. Not the least of these, to my mind, is the salvaging of Madeline from the surroundings, not elevating, to a place among the best of our people. She herself has been your reward, I know, and I appreciate what it must be to give up her intimate comradeship and lose her from your home, perhaps. We save to send forth and not to keep. Life is giving more than getting, and he who gives in the end gets the most. Miss Monroe struggled too with believing her commitment to God was enough and that he could love her. Another letter from J.C. Beer stated May 13, 1924, in a response to a letter of hers, quote, sometimes I almost believe in the omnipotence of grace and that souls like you cannot fail. I really do not think that, that, would be, that it would hurt you to believe that, too, for your tendency to be sadly pessimistic about yourself. Of course God loves you. He loves us even when we wander. He loves us when we are not at our best. He loves us when we fail. He loves us always. Our Heavenly Father knows all and loves in spite of that. Imperfect, improbable heroes seeking more of God. Floyd was building a house for the newlyweds to occupy at 92 Franklin Avenue. I have the deeds, I have the mortgage, I have the tax records, and they happily occupied it together for the eight years until his untimely death before reaching his 38th birthday. I have a series of letters between brothers Floyd Niece as the N.C. president and Orville Niece when president of Pasadena, another delightful series. Written by my grandfather on October 29, almost exactly a year, in 1929, before he died, quote, We are making a strong effort to be ready to start the new administration building by the 1st of March. Now about $40,000 pledged on the project. Enthusiasm is growing. H.V. Miller and L. D. P. V. PV are determined and energetic. Brother Gould is standing with us squarely. The rest of the trustees are trailing along in the tail of the comet. I'm hoping to go to Drew next semester, now or never. I gave ENC the time when I should have been finishing my doctorate and gave it to them at a rate of remuneration that was so utterly insignificant that I feel at liberty to push my claim now a bit stronger than I might otherwise. I have only eight hours left now and then my dissertation. It never happened for the demands of the building program kept him focused on the needs of ENC for the last year of his life. Madeline, Grammy, never recovered from his death. Looking at the pictures of the four of them, then three, her countenance was forever changed. She raised my father and Helen, ten months old at her father's death, through the Depression, with many miraculous stories of Christian support. She almost immediately became registrar at ENC and later foreign student advisor. In a remembrance, this is your life on Mother's Day in 1966 event in her honor, my dad said. For years, when she needed someone to work at home, she simply signed a slip for the business office and they credited the amount to the student's bill out of first my father's back salary and then her own. And she worked for a years for, years, for full-time for $500 a year, supporting two kids paying off a large mortgage. I remember that when it was so bad that we all lined up at the college kitchen door to get basic milk and groceries, and this is what they carried over regularly to the dining hall to get the milk for their family, instead of salary. Those could be charged when there wasn't money in the college bank account to issue checks. Dad said, went on to say, I did most of the shopping, even as a kid. The supermarket had three grades of hamburger, 39 cents, 29 cents, and two pounds for a quarter. About the only difference I could see was the size of the grind. We got the two for a quarter variety. I learned later, it was dog food. Dad loved fishing and boating and provided for us a family camp on Lake Champlain, Vermont, which we enjoy still. He learned this love as a young boy at Camp Moranacook during several boyhood summers, sent by a benefactor, Harvard professor, whose daughter Grammy had helped. Dad also told us of a barrel of flour given to the family during this time. When first using it, Grammy found a small package of tightly wrapped change. Dad wanted to dive in and look for more, but she admonished him saying that God would provide when needed, and he did. Even as bills were found, as the flower was used, one measure at a time. And the stories go on. My dad, I haven't left enough time. Another thing I've learned as I get older is that the loss of parents is never an easy thing, and I miss them. But missing means there was a special loving that happened during shared times dad quietly told me once well before his presidency here that as a five-year-old coping with the loss of his father he had a vision of his dad telling him to carry on his work not sure that it meant at enc he served in many capacities with nazarene higher education always with this place in the back of his mind after the church in newark ohio he came back to enc as dean of men and athletic director we lived in the apartment at Memorial, where more recently our son, Jeff, and his family lived. When visiting them, I had flashbacks to my second or third year when I had to be rescued from falling into the toilet. I believe it's the same fixture there now. I got to be one of the first Crusader mascots, and I have nowhere to wear that outfit now. In a letter to my parents for their 50th anniversary celebration, alumni Mickey Shane shared a story of one dark night at 9 p.m. at ENC in 1951. He said, Stephen, Christine, and a little baby lived in the RD apartment on the bottom floor of Memorial Shields complex boys dorm. 10 or 12 of the boys that lived in the mansion began a pillow fight in the mansion entry hall and the stairway leading to the second floor, which became progressively more slam, bang, noisy, and raucous with flying pillows and yells of laughter. Steve got wind of the noisy fun and as a new untested RD appeared at the mansion entry hall and stepped into the middle of the flying pillows and feathers and yelling and laughing boys and bedlam. As he appeared, the noises and action tapered off as the boys waited for their sharp reprimands for their actions. They were completely taken by surprise when Steve grabbed the pillow out of Mickey's hand, who was waiting for the rebuke, and slammed him with his own pillow so hard that he fell down. (laughs) Unhurt and reasonably prudent, though dazed, Mickey determined it best to stay on the floor while Steve joined the fray for the next few minutes. Then calling a halt, Steve pointed out the extra time they'd received and asked them to clean it up and quiet it down, and he helped them with the process and earned their respect. Dad served many years under the tutelage of Dr. Ed Mann at ENC and finally as Director of Development. I particularly remember the the end-of-the-year emphasis on fundraising and being paid 35 cents an hour, minimum wage, to operate the addressograph, addressing envelopes, and then hand-folding letters to stuff into them. To each letter, Dad personally added a comment and his signature. He left the ENC to be the founding president of Mount Vernon Nazarene University, then college. While there was pride at ENC for having one of their own called to this task, there was definitely a rub because the change in college zones took away ENC's strongest area of financial support. I was a disgruntled high school student, not any too pleased to be dragged to parts unknown during my teenage years. It all worked out, no time to tell it, but again God. Dad's return to E.N.C. in 1980, as described in Heritage, at a Heritage Day event later, were deemed the good old days, known by clarity of purpose. In his report to the Board of Trustees, October 25, 1988, he said, Clarity of purpose, including a deep desire to be true to both an academic and spiritual mission, has ever characterized this college and characterizes her today. We mean it when we sing our alma mater, clear her vision, high her purpose, and her faith is true, undaunted. We are knit together by ENC family ties and a determination as a holiness college to be true to the principles set forth by Bertha Monroe. There is no conflict between the best in education and the best in our Christian faith. It was a time of record enrollment. We aspire to the same undergraduate numbers today, 800 plus. His presidency began and ended with NEASC reaccreditation, somehow apropos in light of the fact that the first permission from the state of Massachusetts to grant degrees happened when his father was president. In the same address, the speaker listed some characteristics and results to Steve Neese's credit. He said, He had the heart of a pastor and was an ordained minister. He was always concerned about people and inclusiveness. He had a vision and was able to articulate it, hold it before the community. He founded the Agape Fund, a discretionary fund to provide quietly for those in financial need. I don't think he foresaw the dunk tank, but I think he would have been right up there on the stand with everybody else, which helped to support it this year. The students that weren't here early didn't see that, but it was interesting. And I didn't get dunked, thank God. Okay. <laughs> he also said that Steve Nies communicated both orally and in writing, showing he cared about people and about their treatment. He showed humble servant leadership both in preaching and in practice. Yet I knew him in times of frustration, in times of hurt disappointment and discouragement, and times when my mother felt widowed to ENC not perfect people but a perfect god a god of then a god of now and for tomorrow in a recent chapel dr mcpherson said we all want to be heroes part of a miracle we want to be used by god in big and powerful ways we have to work at them day by day being faithful to what god is calling you to friday jeff carr called us to a vision bigger than ourselves and there are the connections then and now. We are and always have been an imperfect and improbable people called to a vision higher than ourselves in obedient adoration of an immeasurable God who with his merciful provision chose us. Stories too many to tell today. I'm going to close grateful for your attention and you've been wonderful. And Grateful for the privilege of continuing our family's service to ENC. I'm going to conclude with my father's words. Eastern Nazarene College is and always must remain, first and foremost, a ministry. Challenging young people to give their talents, aptitudes, and abilities and intellects to Jesus Christ, and under a ministering college faculty, develop here to their fullest potential that they may serve their God effectively, and in serving him, lovingly serve their fellow man. We're going to have um, our alma mater, and then we're going to have a conclusion by my baby, Jeremy Scott, pastor of North Street Community. Thank you.
0: Please stand as we sing our alma mater. On our campus Reaching to the blue, Shady was beneath The foliage flowering beauty rare Blessed by nature How we love thee Alma mater fair By her purpose, Lord, she stands serene, and her faith is sure, undaunted, Eastern Nazarene. We will prove our strong devotion, Lord.
1: receive the benediction. As we think about those who've come before us, those who are with us, and those who will come after us, wherever we are, in every place, at every time of every day, may all of us honestly and humbly believe, holding in our hearts to love, honor, to adore, to serve, to praise, bless, glorify, exalt, magnify, and give thanks to the most high and eternal God, unity and trinity by the Holy Spirit, and in Christ Jesus. Amen. Go in peace to love and to serve. You are dispersed.